Oh, oh, by the way, it is storming over here, so, like, if I cut out. <laughs> okay, so why. if you disappear, I'll know why. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AdCast, a podcast for the study of modern visual culture. I'm your Japanese-German captain at the age of 14, Renu. <laughs> and I'm your Genki glasses-wearing Evangelion Destroyer, <laughs> Soup. <laughs> this week, that stands for Absolute Terror and Anniversary Time, because we'll be talking about Evangelion 2.0, You Cannot Advance. Uh, also known as Evangelion Shin Gekijouban Ha! 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 But before we get into that, uh, what are you not to? Um, well, to be honest, I mean, uh, it actually has not been that long since we've recorded the, uh, the last episode. We're recording mm-hmm. this one pretty far in advance, um, all things considered, so that we can get it out, uh, because mm-hmm. we'll both be doing kind of like holiday stuff. Um, yeah. And it's just more convenient this way. But mm-hmm. uh, we have since started that project that we talked about last time we ended the podcast where we have started to play uh, Ace Attorney, the Ace Attorney trilogy, yeah. every Saturday around mm-hmm. 8 to 10-ish uh, PS- <laughs> PST. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's been that's been super fun. We've we've done it for uh, two weeks now. We're, gonna, we're probably going to go on a little, little break for the, um, the holiday season. Um, which is actually funny now that I think about it. When the episode comes out, we'll be pretty close to actually just returning from the holiday season. So I guess I guess that's <laughs> I kind of that. a moot. Yeah, I, was yeah. Gonna say, I guess that's kind of a moot point. We don't we don't really need to to mention it. But yeah, we've been doing that. That's been super fun. Um, yeah, we're splitting up the voicing of uh, of the characters, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm having I'm having a blast. I'm having a blast. It's we're really fun. Some, <laughs> we're doing some lawyering. It's a, it's a good time. I love I love the Ace Attorney games with with all my heart. I have a lot of sort of passionate feelings about them mm. and mm-hmm. maybe once we finish the uh the trilogy <gasps> we can somehow track down a, a a copy of apollo justice i'm not gonna say how and maybe <laughs> we can talk about the um the ace attorney <laughs> games as a as a kind of like you know uh as a, as a series because uh dude I, i'd love I do, to yeah yeah I, I do love uh i do love ace attorney it's one of the mm-hmm. it's it's funny because like even though i have a lot of problems with uh all of the mainline games that come after apollo justice it's still yeah. one of those series where no matter what happens, I, I will buy the next game in the series. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's one of those things that really does, like, move consoles for me. Um, oh. If uh, n- Not that Ace Attorney is ever really something that comes out on a system that, like, is highly inaccessible. Usually usually, what causes me to move systems is is Fire Emblem. Like, if, if there's a Fire Emblem <laughs> game coming out, I'll, like, buy a Switch or whatever, right? Right. Um, but yeah. So that's what that's what we've been up to. Um, other than that, I've I've been playing through Dark Souls two on the channel. Um, mm-hmm. Again, probably by the time this episode comes out, I'll have been on a bit of a hiatus because I'll be um, away from my uh, computer for the holiday season. Um, but yeah, other than that, I'm really not not been up to much. Um, have Have you been up to anything uh, anything more interesting or substantial? 
<laughs> um, I guess like some home changes. Uh, so one of our foster cats, or I guess our last foster cat, Marco, he got adopted yesterday. Wow, wow, and, wow, wow. Uh, yeah, it was like I knew it was going to be the one that would really like emotionally wreck me <laughs> because <laughs> we've had him, I guess, the longest out of all the foster cats this year, and uh, you know, with everything that happened with Polo and his, his brother and. It was, uh, I I knew that whatever home we got for him would have, to, it just had to be the best home we could possibly get for him, right? Because it right, just felt right. like that's, that's what he deserves, especially after everything that happened. Um, and so, yeah, uh, we got contacted like on Friday by this police constable who was looking to adopt huh. a third cat. Uh <laughs> And, uh, I thought you were gonna say for the for the police station. I was like, "What police no. station lets you have cats?" No. What? <laughs> that would be amazing, but uh, I wouldn't actually want him there because that'd be kind of scary for him. But oh, oh yeah, uh, that'd be terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, this this constable he lives like in the countryside, so like I guess like an hour away from us. And um, yeah, he wanted to adopt Marco as a playmate for um, one of the younger of his two cats um, because she apparently is getting she she's kind of like starved for I guess playtime and stuff like that with another cat and the right. cat that the other cat that they do have is older and not really interested in that so yeah so that's kind of in line with what we wanted for Marco is we wanted a playmate for him um, since we weren't obviously able to adopt him out with Polo anymore um, and we wanted him to, you know, have a nice area to explore around and to just have, you know, people who would be able to be available and play with him as well, like that kind of thing. And this seemed like such an ideal fit for him and the people were really nice. So, uh, yeah, now that we, uh, got to meet them yesterday and, um, everything went well, they seemed knowledgeable about cats, like, uh, the wife of the couple, they, uh, she, she had has had cats all her life kind of deal, so she has plenty mm-hmm. of experience with them. And um, yeah, so we adopted him out, and the couple was nice enough to text us when they got home and how they were treating Marco and how they set him up in the house. And um, apparently today he started warming up a little bit. Like he, he uh, hopped up into the lap of the constable a couple of times and found the litter box, and he's eating. And so it's 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 nice. <laughs> That's I'm glad That's to good. get updates, and it's really sweet that they uh, have been updating us so so frequently because you know mm-hmm. we miss him. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was like some bittersweet news. Like obviously, really good that he has a, a permanent home now, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, the house has been super quiet without him. <laughs> Like, he has been uh, the yeah. most vocal presence in this household to date. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's, he's, it's been very quiet without him. Um, but, uh, yeah, in, I guess, like, some cheerier news, even? Um, we, uh, uh, my roommate, um, before we had settled all this Marco adoption business, decided that he was going to adopt a dog. And they're having that meetup this coming weekend. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, so um, we'll be meeting the dog and uh, hopefully bringing it into the house if everything goes well. And um, after that, we'll be like holiday stuff. So 
Yeah. Nice. nice. <laughs> what kind of? Uh, do you know what kind of dog? Yeah, it's an Australian Shepherd. Um, uh-huh. it has a red and white coat, and it's uh, well, he is really freaking adorable. He's seven months old, or eight months old. Sorry. Um, baby. And yeah, yeah, he baby. <laughs> baby. Very playful and energetic baby. <laughs> Oh, I uh, I hope he gets along well with the cats then. Yeah, that's uh, that's what we're anticipating is uh, well the the foster taking care of him right now said that she owns like a separate ferret rescue and he doesn't really bother with the ferrets at all. He just kind of ignores them. So mm. we're hoping that's how he'll treat the cats. But um, he hasn't been cat tested yet. I don't think so. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. <laughs> yep. Um. Nice. Yeah. I guess that's that's it, you know. <laughs> yeah, lots of animal I mean, updates. Things things just kind of like slowed down a little bit during this time. Like everybody's mm-hmm. just gearing up for the holidays, and nothing's really happening. I mean, obviously, uh, <laughs> this year has been um, <laughs> quite <laughs> quite unique in uh, mm-hmm. in in that respect of everything seems to happen all at once and not at all. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I I guess I guess it's um it's like th- I mean. Honestly, I like I, I mean as 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 one gets older, I feel like the holiday season can very much kind of uh begin to slip away from you as like a thing that brings you like a vast amount of of joy. Actually, quite a lot of people, um adults especially get depressed during the holidays for, yeah. you know, various mm-hmm. reasons. Um mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting to me cuz like I um like you you really do miss the kind of childlike joy and splendor you had for the the holiday season like there was a nice long winter break get to hang out with your family if that was a thing you wanted to do um you celebrate various you know winter holidays and you might get presents and that's that's all like well and good um and then as you grow older you're just like oh shit it's like thanksgiving and oh oh it's it's christmas oh oh oh, it's christmas (laughs) right so yeah it's um it's it's been interesting um looking down at the calendar and being like, Jesus Christ, it's already the 13th of December. How is that even possible? Yeah, it's been moving fast. <laughs> yeah, December has been a, a blur for me. My my brain mm-hmm. still thinks it's like August, which is, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I still think it's August and I look outside and there's like rain and I'm like, what the? Oh, huh. huh. Yeah. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. I mean, it's it's interesting to think about where I was um, last year uh, around this time and uh, how <laughs> mm. how how hopeful how hopeful I was around December of this, <laughs> how this time young last and year. hopeful <laughs> and just just how much this year has absolutely just kind of crushed everything mm. um, and. I don't know. It's it's certainly been a rough one for a lot of reasons for pretty much everybody uh, on the planet, and mm. here we are, pretty much at the end of it. I like legitimately feel like I went to sleep when I woke up, and 2020 was almost over. And I honestly don't know how to feel about that because on one hand, Jesus Christ, that's a year of my life, and we've pretty much lost that year of our life, and we're we're not gonna get it back. Um, and on the other hand. Oh man, does it like it just kind of feels like I I really do just want the year to to be over. Um I know that the the sort of passing of time has 
and, and the kind of presence of it as as a thing has less to do with our current situation than you know all of the the terrible things that we have as a civilization um especially this country has has done we're kind of really reaping what what we've been sowing for the mm-hmm. past like 200 years so yeah. i mean there's like you know obviously um 2020 being over will not will not mean that everything will magically get better um yeah. but you know it still does kind of feel like it it feels good to be able to say goodbye to a time period where so much that was bad happened in such a short amount of time so that's yeah i mean there things will definitely come to an end within the next year um (laughs) uh, hopefully to to a happier end but uh you know and i think that's what people are looking forward to um if that if the changing of our you know arbitrarily decided (laughs) year cycle uh, is what's going to perk up people's attitudes, then I guess that's fine. But yeah, definitely right. I mean, don't there, allocate the responsibility to just the changing of the year. <laughs> there is there is obviously still like a lot to, to worry about. Um, yeah. I mean, as of as of now, when we're recording, it still looks like the the um sort of transfer of power will be happening at all mm-hmm. which is which is you know we're holding out hope that that's gonna stay the way it is but like you know the courts have have decided like ah yeah we're gonna you know keep the uh the decision we're not gonna like overturn any of these any of these decisions um but obviously there is a long long road until the 21st of january um it's more than a month and who knows what kind of damage can happen mm-hmm. in time so yeah like you know, we, I feel like the the kind of news coming out of the White House generally has been a lot quieter recently, which is weirdly cause for concern with this, with this kind of Yeah, so. no, definitely. I think it's like a calm before the storm. It's, it's purely like a lot of it is going to do with the holidays because, you know, people are just going to be out of the office during the holidays. But I feel like January right. is when things are going to be extremely wild. Yeah, January wild. will be very <laughs> yeah. uh, turbulent, to say yeah. the least. And mm-hmm. I'm not 100% looking forward to it. Um, yeah. But obviously, you know, hopefully with the kind of transfer of power, we at least have some amount of doing anything about our current predicament in relation to the global pandemic that is killing all of us right (laughs) so that would be one thing um obviously we have um kind of vaccines uh in the work and it's actually it's like the vaccine was developed like surprisingly quickly and um Obviously, people have some reservations about that, but apparently the very, like, sad truth about it is that the reason it was able to be developed so quickly, at least the early testing stages, was because the United States is such a hotbed for people who are infected with the virus. Right, like, they were able to study it more because there were so many active samples that they could draw like, from. Like, that's, that truly, that truly is just, oof. I mean, yeah. that really kind of lays bare the the sort of foundation of of our country, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But like, I mean, I mean, there are still things to worry about. Um, obviously, in regards to everybody knew that the winter holidays would be would be rough because like it's traditionally when people get sick and spread sickness because they're indoors all the time. And yeah. like, we're definitely going to see another 
like two week spike after the holiday season because you know people just don't people just want to kill grandma i guess <laughs> stop <laughs> people just want to kill grandma it's grandma. a liberal hoax grandma already. no that's what they say Ugh, yikes anyway um but i mean hopefully after after that we can start to do anything at all and hopefully things will get at least somewhat better um i know that uh here in California, we have um, started sheltering in place again um, because because the numbers Ooh. were were going up again, and mm-hmm. um, some some uh, counties actually took it upon themselves to start sheltering um, early, which which is nice. I mean, it's nice to live in a place that takes like on a sort of governmental level um, that takes you know those kinds of things seriously, but mm-hmm. like obviously the same cannot necessarily be said about the rest of 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 the country um which is you know it's like you at a certain point you just have to feel bad for the people that live in places where like your your governors just aren't really doing anything and your mayors aren't really doing anything it's like yikes what do you even do at that point other than just try to keep yourself safe like there's really nothing you can do about it yeah i mean that that is what you do about it is you just try to keep yourself safe (laughs) i say as someone who may or may not be in that situation And and obviously, like this, this kind of is also one of those things where if you had a, um, <laughs> like if if you really had what capitalism said that it was, um, on the tin, where it was like you know about maximizing kind of uh profits and cost benefit um analysis and like um making sure you get the most like benefit for you know what you're what you're inputting, like we probably would have all been sheltered a long time ago and we would have gotten money for staying home because like we're losing so much more money and like obviously money is not like the end all be all because like people are dying but like we're losing so much money because of the way that we're handling this and it really just goes to show you that they don't actually even necessarily care about the economy necessarily they just they just want to make more money for themselves like it is absolutely in my opinion unforgivably criminal how much money like the world's billionaires have made in the time that the rest of us have like been dying mhm yeah like if your net worth is increasing by billions while the rest of us are here choosing um i don't know between like rent and food and we're probably going to get uh, evicted after the moratoriums are lifted like it's really just unforgivable. Like, do something, please. Mm-hmm. Like, you you are one of the few people in the very world that has the power to do something and you've chosen not to do anything with it is the most depressing thing to think about. Happy holidays, everybody. There's a depressing thought for you. Anyway, <laughs> rant, rant aside, um, I mean, obviously, like, it's worth spending a little bit of time reminiscing about about the year because, like, it has been quite an interesting and unique one. Um, and this is our end of the year episode, and it's very wild to think about the fact that we've been doing this for like three, three some odd years now. Um, like, we're by the time this episode comes out, it will it will have been like three years, but like, um. You know, we have we have gone through quite a bit um this 
this podcast was kind of born at the at the um the sort of beginning of the very turbulent four years that we've had um with, with our current <laughs> uh you know with our current president and mm-hmm. um we're glad that you've been you've been sticking with us and and yeah. that we can provide you some modicum of entertainment while I like rant about everything that is wrong with the world. Capitalism. <laughs> it's capitalism. And everybody knows it. Even Evangelion knows it. Yeah. Um, it's been a very weird year, like, just in general, um, obviously because of the fact that everybody was, was inside. But it's also, like, been a super turbulent year for um, content creators just kind of in general. There was a large sort of exodus of um, content creators for uh, things that were previously swept under the rug, kind of following the the wave of like the Me Too movement where people were coming out and talking about like how, you know, ex content creator was abusing their um their power and their outreach to mm-hmm. like prey on, you know, um young people, right? Yeah. And there were like a lot of stories like that that came out. And um obviously there was uh the whole thing where, you know, a couple of uh a couple of you know, weeks, months into um, into shelter and and quarantine, uh, the Bon Appetit YouTube channel exploded because they didn't want to stop doing the racism, <laughs> <laughs> which is like kind of kind of a kind of a shame too, because that was like one of the the few things that was like genuinely delightful. Um, right during such a such a difficult time. Although I will say, um, if you if you are interested, um. Uh, Sola El Whaley has a um, a couple of gigs, but her kind of primary place um, on the internet right now is um, she is working with um, the YouTuber Binging with Babish to kind of have her own show where she can really kind of flex the full range of her talents, which is very cool to see. And, you know, we're pretty much assured that she's getting like fair compensation um, and, and we're trusting it because we probably think that she would not have, you know, taken that job otherwise. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, you have um, Claire just started her own YouTube channel. Um, oh. Or at the very least, she started uploading to her own YouTube channel. Um, she's kind of doing, she's going through her, like, recipe book, her, like, you know, cookbook and um, making recipes from, from that book. Um, yeah, it's Claire Saffet's ex-dessert person, I believe. And mm-hmm. that's, that's been nice, too, because, like, you know, you, you miss Claire. You miss Claire. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. everybody misses Claire. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that, you know, you don't have to support, like, Bon Appetit um, as a, a structure, not that I, like, necessarily uh, would begrudge anybody who, who, who does, because, you know, obviously they have a, um, a new cast, and many of those people are, you know, people of color who really need that spotlight, um, but like just knowing kind of how the the sausage is made has like really turned a lot of people off <laughs> and mm-hmm. it has kind of revealed to people that like what was good about bon appetit in the first place was was just how likable and unique and irreplaceable the people were like this is ultimately the thing that gets me about about the new bon appetit um kind of test kitchen project i guess you could call it is that it superficially attempts to address some of the problems that people had with it, but in a way where they're not willing to make any structural change whatsoever. Because, mm. like, 
at the end of the day, what they essentially did was, um, oh, I believe, I believe Gabby also has her own channel now. I don't think she's oh. working at, at Bon Appetit anymore. Um, if I can track that down, I'll, I'll link it to in the, in the podcast description, but like, um, like that, right. But also the fact that, um, what they essentially did when, when faced with that criticism was they just brought new people on, which shows like the exact mentality that like people were basically like saying like, Hey, right. this sucks. Right? right. Where literally if your solution is I'm just going to replace the cast with a new right. cast of quirky, likable people, then you've completely yeah. missed the point. Right. Yeah. And like, it's, it's like a thing where, um, a lot of YouTube content nowadays, YouTube content has changed actually a lot in, um, as a result of kind of the algorithm changes that they've, they've done, but also how we've progressed as a, a society that consumes culture on the internet, where it used to be the things that got the most um, eyes on YouTube were like short clips and, right. and yeah. memes and things that you could like really easily pass around. And yeah. to some extent, like those things are still popular, but that doesn't lead to viewer retention. What leads to viewer retention is very personality driven. Yes, and so yes. that kind of stuff is very, very important for, um, I don't know, say you're like quirky YouTube cooking channel, like slice of life thing. Right. And yeah, it's kind of sad because like it really does show you um what what goes on in in the workplace right it's like the myth of the happy workplace where ultimately <laughs> you know ultimately we are all under the the boot heel of capitalism and we, have, <laughs> we often we more often than not have jobs not because we like what we do um but but because we have no choice but to have jobs Right. Yeah. The whole like replacing of the workforce, I guess, for Bon Appetit and the way that it's chosen to move forward is it doesn't surprise me at all because I've even seen it with places that I've worked at, you know, mm -hmm. is when there is some kind of mass exodus of employees due to some mismanagement by the company, they they bring in more people because they, they have to continue their, you know, they have to continue making that revenue happen right? Um, rather than actually address what happens. and if they're forced to, which they'll usually give like some kind of company address or whatever, it will be in such a way that they don't apologize for anything that they did. Right. Know? And it's like even more egregious in the case of Bon Appetit too, because the, the problem at, in the first place was the fact that the people of color felt so disposable because they weren't being paid the same right. as like their white counterparts. And it's like, then you've done the exact problem that people were saying that you, okay, all right, right. I, I see, I see what this is. Yeah, and it's further propagated by the fact that a lot of companies, at least within the United States, employees are forbidden from talking about their wages with their coworkers. Yeah, well, that that's a big thing. A lot of people, yeah. like, even, even people that I, like, kind of would expect to know otherwise are very reticent about um, talking about their, yeah. um, about their income. Because they kind of, it's socially viewed in the United States, at least, as kind of a, a not, like, like socially appropriate thing to do. Which yeah. is, I mean, definitely something that, like, some boss, some executive somewhere was like, hey, can we make this happen? Because, like, if right. people talk about their wages, they'll know exactly. that they're being shorted, right? Exactly. So, like, it's one of those things where I would absolutely encourage people to to be more open to talking oh, about Oh, yeah, for sure. Because like, you're not... really Right, like, go ahead. Yeah, like... Well, I was just gonna say you're not gonna know if if you're being cheated or if someone around you is being cheated exactly. unless you talk to each other. Yeah, right? 
it 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 has a weird societal effect in this country where it feels like if you talk about your wage and it happens to be higher or lower than your coworker who does the same job as you you feel you take that personally and think that oh well that is that person somehow just better than me or like what's the deal here you you end up right. blaming yourself blaming your coworker rather than blaming the management and that shouldn't be the yeah. case at all i mean it it's it, it's really the sort of like logical inconsistency that permeates the rest of the country um where yeah. in every in every respect and th- like the united states is kind of like uniquely um really terrible about this and i i suspect that a lot of it comes from kind of the the lingering ghost of um of the protestant work ethic which we kind of still see today where like i mean really the protestants just kind of ruined everything for everyone huh wow am i I right well like wow the thing thing about (laughs) it is that like the protestant work ethic is so toxic and so destructive but it's so fundamental to the the basis of our societal psychology where, mm. you know, if you have, like, a mental illness and you can't work all the time, you feel like that's because you're lazy and bad. Mm, it, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. ev- everything that happens is not the fault of, of society. It is the fault of your personal moral failing. Right. Um, which is the kind of, like, core of the Protestant work ethic. It has been since moved to more of a secular idea, but it has evolved rather than going away like it should have a long fucking time ago. Because, like, realistically, realistically speaking, like, you're not in competition. You shouldn't have to be in competition with your fellow workers. You should be working together because that's how things get done. But that's not how companies and that's not how our society treats people. They say, look at this. That person, like... It's it's like that it's like that that image of this like guy with like a plate full of cookies and like one guy has one cookie and the other guy's like looking at the plate of cookies and he's just like look that guy wants to take your cookie right <laughs> it's like the country is so hostile towards worker solidarity because it so heavily encourages competition and yes and, like yes. personal improvement yeah. Yeah. Uh, to the detriment of of worker yeah. solidarity and yeah. real meaningful relationships and it's like so yeah. terrible and toxic and destructive it's like if you don't work hard enough you're never gonna make it it's like well like i don't know maybe maybe as like human beings we shouldn't have to work to have places to live because we have enough places to live actually and we're still building more we'll just we're just we've just chosen not to give people places to live because we don't think they deserve them and it's like such a bad mentality to have in in regards to to, you know your fellow human being right that's that's the way the way it works like um, places are intentionally built to drive out other people who might already live there because you don't right, want exactly. those kinds of people there and, <laughs> and that's like that's that's like the most egregious thing isn't yeah. it like gentrification yeah. is like so egregious because yes. people already are living there and you've decided uh you know what i don't want these people living here yeah. i want better quote-unquote people to right live there and it's like all right all right get stuffed <laughs> <laughs> get stuffed <laughs> Yeah, it's, yep. yeah, it's I don't know. Um, <laughs> always, always the holiday season, and and I mean, I know I'm like this all the time, but like always the holiday season puts me more into this mood where I'm just like so upset about everything <laughs> that like happens. Um, that is, by all rights, technically outside of my uh, outside of my personal control, and like even that framing is like so 
like centered around the idea that one person matters so much where like mm. yeah sure one person does matter in in the context of a lot of things you know you know a, a, a human life is sort of nothing to to disregard lightly or regard lightly rather um but when you when you have the idea that climate change you know uh, the the sort of coming existential threat to humanity um you're like well what can i do to be better to do better and like there isn't really a lot that you personally can do you can do as much as you want to like reduce your own carbon footprint but even if you are like you know um carbon neutral or even like you know negative or whatever um it takes a much larger scale of of action like the i think top 10% of the wealth um owners in uh in the world contribute to something like 50% of the the carbon emissions so mm. like there's nothing that that you can really do i mean obviously that doesn't mean you shouldn't do things that are better right um you you should strive to live as as good a life for the people around you uh and the future generations as possible but like right. You know, at a certain point, the only thing you can really do is band together with your fellow people to eat the oil-owning class. <laughs> there has to be some kind of systemic change, essentially, to, right? Exactly, in order to and, impact a big enough change. And it's like it's like so frustrating because you know that's not the way that your psychology, if you've if you've kind of grown up in um in the United States um or even in some kind of other uh, a lot of most other countries, I'll, I'll say, but like. If you if you grow up in the United States, it's uniquely suited to um, that mentality where you're like, well, one person matters so much. My individuality matters so much. Like, I have to be able to do something. And when you get told, no, you can't do anything by yourself, um, you have no recourse. You have nothing else that, right. that you can turn to because, you know, the entire fabric of society has been built so that the connections you have with other people are invisible. Right. And... Um, I don't know. That's a pretty good segue into Evangelion, I would say. Let's get in there. Let's, let's get in there <laughs> so that we're not here for four hours because we already – we planned to do both movies, um, both rebuild movies, um, both of the latter two rather. So like um, 2.22 and 3.33. Yes. Um, uh, if there's any confusion on the naming scheme, it's 2.0 was the theater release. 2.22 was the Blu-ray release. Um, likewise for 3.0 uh, and yeah. 3.33. Um, I have no idea if they added or changed any scenes, but I mean, it's Anno, so probably. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but anyway. Um, I watched 2.0. <laughs> I watched 2.22 because that's what I found on my computer hard drive. <laughs> well, we're going to have... <laughs> if we talk about something that the other hasn't seen, then we'll know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, like, the... Um, we wanted to talk about that, but, like, halfway through watching 2.22, I was like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> this episode will run for far too long because I know I have a lot to say about 2.22 and I know Ren is going to have a lot to say about 3.33 yeah yeah. I, uh, I was really surprised because last time we talked you were like well I don't know how much I have more to say about Ava but here we are <laughs> here, here we are and I've written like a, yeah. a page and a half single yeah. spaced of, of notes a Ava so. draws it out of us I guess <laughs> yeah I, I, I really am surprised like kind of every time I watch Ava like how how much more I, I get out of it. And it's it's one of those <laughs> things where, like, I as a person am uniquely not very good at going back and watching, like, old media. Sure. Um, I have a hard time with it. But I think yeah. Ava is one of those things where I can come back and watch it because I think 
it is one of those um, shows that is like so complicated that mm -hmm. the more you grow and experience the kind of more things you can bring and the yes. more ways you yes. can interpret it. Um, yeah. And like, obviously, you know, when you have a, um, a near apocalyptic event uh, that forces everybody to stay inside all the time, like, <laughs> it really does <laughs> it does make eva take on kind of a new new sort of meaning um but yeah i mean let's <laughs> let's get right into it so like yeah evangelion 2.22 you cannot advance uh not being of course in parentheses um is not directed by hidekayano or not chiefly directed but it is written by him yeah it um, is written by him yeah it is chiefly directed by kazuya surumaki who um mm -hmm. i i don't recognize the name but i'm sure he's probably done something um, um he's he's like an old hand in in gynex and, and yeah I, I bet yeah. i bet um but it's it's very um it kind of takes the like latter half of the evangelion series and just really really hard compresses it into about two hours yeah um it is such a different experience than than watching the series and i mean it's it's quite it's been quite a while since i've watched uh 2.22 um so i had to uh, obviously rewatch it um the other day and it has been quite some time since i have watched the series as well i don't remember the last time i did i think i watched like a couple episodes the first time um when it like launched on netflix um that was mm. the last time i rewatched any any evangelion but the um the pacing of it is like very different um yes. I'm, I'm not gonna say mm -hmm. it's better or worse obviously it's mm -hmm. formatted for a movie and i have a lot of feelings about series to movie recap um adaptations but evangelion rebuilds kind of occupy a very unique place where because there's so much content added to whereas whereas 1.0 i think is mostly just recap of of the first like you know some odd episodes i don't yes. actually remember when, when when um when it like what episode it like kind of cuts off at but like the um 2.0 onwards uh has a lot um uh, of deviations from from the original series and so i think it works because it is both adapted for film and i mean that in in the the way of it is hard adapted right mm -hmm. um and it isn't just retelling the series cuz i think it would yeah. be a lot weaker if it did i think 1.0 sure. was was fine I think it yeah. was it was paced it was paced well um and it covers as much as it needs to cover and I think yeah. 2.0 recognizes that you can't fit the rest of the <laughs> Evangelion series right. and really just kind of hard condenses it into a lot of um the more uh tense kind of um cuz like the structure of the rebuild is Johaku which is like a, a traditional um japanese kind of stage rhythm where you have like the beginning you have the rising action and then you have the climax so 2.0 is is the rising action there are a lot of very intense scenes that happen but mm -hmm. a lot of 2.0 actually is very mundane actually mm -hmm. it, it focuses yeah. a lot around kind of the daily life of of shinji and and um being introduced to asuka and you know hanging out with his friends and and, and whatnot you see a yeah. lot 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 more of the daily life of of tokyo 3 um as opposed it is tokyo 3 right i'm, I'm not yeah. just like pulling that out yeah okay. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's um you you see a lot more of the kind of mundane day-to-day -day activity 
than than you ever did in the series um because yeah. the series is very like aside from the school very empty and kind of devoid of of uh ancillary life whereas 2.0 really makes a point of fleshing that out and showing you what it's like mm-hmm. which i think is interesting um yeah. there's like a tidbit about like how um they can't they can't really justify like meat anymore, so they have to like grow the cell meat. Like, and it's like, oh hey, we're doing that now. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's 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 very interesting because like it really um has that, but there are also like some of them. I think most intense scenes actually in the entire in the entire set of movies, like. <laughs> I mean, the the unit O three kind of stuff has oh, always been God. has yeah. always been really intense, but they like jacked yeah. it up to like yes. twenty five yep. in in the rebuild because it's like, yep. well, first Shinji has to kill like his friend Toji, and yeah. in the rebuild they're like, all right, you are ch- you have like you're you're you are not able to do anything, and your body is choking Asuka to death. Yeah, yep, and it's. It's actually, I think, even more so because of the fact that, you know, Asuka is, is in Unit 03 because she's had Unit 02 taken from her, basically, um, by Yeah, Mari. she's really vulnerable right now in so, this So, like, she's been yep. stripped of, of mm-hmm. her agency, of the way that she yes. can, you know, connect to the world and then yeah. put into a, a different body that doesn't suit her. And yeah. immediately it rejects her. And yeah. And then Shinji comes and he's just like, but wait, I don't want to do this. And he is mm-hmm. forced to enact violence upon mm-hmm. her. And it is, I mean, the scene in, in the original series is obviously like very distressing and very chilling. But like when it's like animated and it lingers for like so long and mm-hmm. like you just see like how much like Shinji hates this. You're like, oh, no, yeah. this is so much. Yeah. Um, it does. It does a really good job, I think, of of driving home just how intense that scene is because it's still i think one of the most horrifying scenes in in the entire set of of movies um yeah and you have that uh you obviously have you know ray being eaten and then shinji trying to save her caught inadvertently causing third impact to happen at the very (laughs) end of uh, the very end of the movie um yeah it's I, I think 2.22 works very well um, as a as a story, um, as a tightly written story um, yes. formatted for a movie. It works really well. And I think it's because it is not quite the middle child, but kind of. Because um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. technically it is a, um, I think it's, I think the term is a tetralogy, but like there's there's four movies yeah. right technically so mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily suffer from the like sagging middle that like you know lord of the rings suffers from hmm. um but because i th- i think the second movie really does a lot to um uh build the action um yeah. and like actually heighten the tension of everything that happens cuz it really grounds um all of the characters it gives them stakes and shows like you know what the world looks like and um and why like people have some amount of care for it and yeah. i think that's mm-hmm. that's always interesting and i this is something that i find that um japanese like anime specifically um is really good at i mm. find that i don't know why but anime is really really good at utilizing like non i guess you could say like plot essential quote unquote um 
even though you know it is um content to enhance the um I would say Japanese media in general, actually, now that I think about it, um, to enhance the kind of emotional impact of the more serious scenes. Like, you get this a lot with, uh, with Yakuza, the Yakuza series, um, which I've been playing through recently, where um, because so much of the Yakuza is, like, these, like, really silly side games mm-hmm. and mini games, and, like, mm-hmm. your main characters are clearly, you know, people who have uh, lived through lifetimes of trauma, and they have a lot of baggage and yeah. expectations, and they're they're held in place and and shackled by their um kind of place in society um you also spend a lot of time humanizing those characters because they they're like really silly in side quests all the side quests are like ridiculous you get to kind of know the people of of Kamurocho and mm-hmm. um, and Sotenori <laughs> um you have there's an entire kind of like sub sub quest line where Kiryu gets really into racing pocket cars and <laughs> yeah. it's a thing that like yeah. he's just really into yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, like honestly it's probably the thing that makes him happiest in the world um, and then like then you can kind of bring that meaning forward into like things that aren't um, as silly right because if you look at Kiryu and you see him being really happy about about like racing like these little mini pocket cars you're like oh that's kind of funny and silly like look at how happy he is and then you like kind of have the realization where you're like wait it's probably because he was like deprived of a normal child oh fuck (laughs) um anyway yep yeah (laughs) go on Yeah, I I would tend to agree, and they do that. They execute that really well in this movie too, because you have the whole, the the classmate dynamic between Rei Shinji and now Asuka, and there's a bit of jealousy working in there as well. Um, when Asuka observes Shinji's relationship with Rei and how they've, you know, they they had the context of 1.0 to bring them together, but Asuka's the new element, you know, and mm-hmm, so she mm-hmm. kind of storms in, and and everything's not about her, and she's upset about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think as like storytelling overall, I do really enjoy 2.0. Um, it it definitely is not a skippable movie if you're gonna mm-hmm. go through Evangelion. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say like probably one of the strongest elements for me in 2.0 was the way that they explored Shinji and and Gendo's relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because their their entire dynamic like. It it permeates the the whole show, obviously, but it really gets brought to the forefront in this ep- uh, this episode, this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> because uh, yeah, they they start off the movie. I mean, aside from you know the introduction of Mari, with them visiting Yui's grave together, and that's such a key moment. I feel and really deeply personal to the both of them. Right, right. And uh, it's super awkward <laughs> between them. <laughs> Um, and then you have Rey, who, like, is, her entire existence is spawned from Yui's, trying to bring them together, like maybe Yui would have done uh, if she were still there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, Gendo, like, he thinks about, like, how Yui told him to take care of Shinji, and then Shinji is confessing to Asuka how the reason he's piloting is because he wants his dad to be proud of him and to recognize mm-hmm. him. Um, and then unit zero three happens. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'll say that I think um, I, I really I really did enjoy that they yeah. decided to flesh out kind of uh, Shinji and, and Gendo's relationship a lot more. Yeah. Because, like, obviously, Gendo Ikari is still the worst anime dad, probably. Um, Dude. But, like... <laughs> At least, at least now you have a little bit more mm-hmm. context for how terrible he is. And- like the 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 line, like when they were at the grave, he mentioned something about how his memories of Yui are kept in his heart, and I was like, "Bro, he has a heart." <laughs> and I laughed. right exactly. Yeah, I mean, like the thing about it is that when you humanize a character like yeah. Gendo Ikari. What you do is um, you take, um, and, and I think this is very interesting, actually, when mm-hmm. you look at the the kind of progression of, of Gendo uh, and the, the different iterations of, of him, where, you know, before in the series, like, you see, like, a, a moment or two where, like, he obviously, you know, does care about something or, or someone, yeah, right? Yeah, of like course, he, yeah. You know he he hurts himself uh, in mm-hmm. order to get um, to get Ray out of out of the the yeah know, pod, but mm-hmm. like wh- like you we have a couple more scenes like that where that it really like kind of humanizes and grounds him and gives him a lot more of a of a basis. And what that does is it really kind of drives home exactly what what he's doing and and why and yeah. gives it a lot mm-hmm. more a uh, lot more impact because sure. before when he's like just kind of mysterious you know shadow yeah. government dad yeah. figure that like mm-hmm. you know you don't know that much about other than like he probably has an emotion like you see him kind of go through the range of emotions and you see that like a lot of what he's doing is like hardening his own heart to do what he feels like must be done yeah even though like other people might not necessarily agree that that's like you know the, the best thing to do um right yeah i think that i th- yeah, I, I think that the one the one thing I will say about two point two two is there is one character that uniquely suffers from um, the shortening of the series, and I'll say that's Asuka. I think Asuka does oh. not get nearly as mm-hmm. much development in two point two two as the comparable episodes in in the series because mm. it's and and I think part of this is it, they don't necessarily have to like if you only watch the rebuild, I think you would find Asuka to be a much weaker character than she is because a lot of her character traits are told very um, kind of casually or subtly or in passing um, or subtextually. Whereas in the series, it's a lot more overt. Like you get to That's see like true. all yeah. of her yeah. kind of trauma surrounding yes. Um, yes. her parents and her yeah. kind of um, sordid attraction to, um, to, uh, to Kaji. And like yeah. you get a lot more of that stuff. Asuka is a much more like well-rounded character. Whereas in, 2.22 she is still all of those things but you don't see them on screen they're kind of right. um hinted at you through interactions with characters which i i wouldn't say is like necessarily um bad but like a lot of the kind of um direct trauma uh that leads to her being a pilot is um screen time that is is actually um kind of usurped to share with Mari um i will say we're gonna put a pin in Mari because I have a lot of feelings about about uh, <laughs> about Mari. But uh-huh. <laughs> um, I I think the rebuild is one of those like funny things where it works specifically because Evangelion the series exists for you to watch, and 
get that basis for Asuka as a character and why she yeah. knows what she does. Because you get a lot yeah. of Shinji, you get a lot of Gendo, and mm-hmm. um, you actually even get like a lot of Rei in, yeah. in 2.22. Yeah. The one the one person you don't really get as much of is is Asuka. And that's I think part of why they put her in Unit 03 this time around. Um it's mm. because it's to make up for the fact that like you really need to kind of ramp up that um that's that like uh you know, uh, emotional intensity and like those character arcs for um the different um pilots. And yeah. um that's not to say that they that they like skimp on her character cuz I I don't think that's true. I think they tell a lot about her character very subtly because um there is a conversation that she has with ray where you know ray doesn't eat meat presumably because she kind of knows that she's like a fabricated human and kind of doesn't feel the need to be alive realistically Mm -hmm. speaking she is alive kind of purely as a as a biological process not really being alive as a as a person and she right. doesn't feel like she deserves to be alive right because she's basically right. just like you know ue2 electric boogaloo and <laughs> so as as a result she she like you can kind of see ray as um not a doll like asuka calls her but as as a very like passive subject as somebody who um does not feel like they deserve things, so they don't go out and, like, do things. And they don't do things like, you know, she doesn't eat meat specifically because she doesn't feel like she has, you know, the right to kind of consume other living creatures. Whereas Asuka, as somebody who fights so strongly to establish herself and her independence and her being alive-ness, very specifically kind of, like, calls her out and says, like, you know, living things eat other living things to continue to live. And... Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great interaction because it's a very, very brief interaction and it shows you, like, one, Rey is a character that does, uh, like, does she doesn't, you know, she kind of feels like she doesn't deserve to be alive because she's, she's like a fabricated human. Um, and in, in actuality, she probably technically doesn't have a soul. I mean, that's a little bit, like, complicated um, because, you know, Yui's soul is in Unit 01. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, the idea of a, of a body without a soul um acquiring humanity throughout the course of the movie i think is is something that obviously the original series explores but um is very explicit in 2.22 that i think is very interesting and yeah obviously on the other hand you have um asuka who fights so so strongly to establish herself as as a living creature that is like separate from you know everyone else she's trying to be a pilot because it it validates her as a human being. It, it's her purpose. It's her, you know, um, purpose for being alive, right? To, to be good at piloting an Ava. And, like, so she is somebody who will kind of, like, eat and eat and eat and consume, but will never be satisfied, which mm-hmm. is very interesting if you look at Unit 02 as, as a, uh, in comparison to, like, you know, Zero One's kind of, um beast mode where like um the berserk mode for for unit zero two is like a beast mode and it like grows teeth and eats things and like yeah. walks on all four legs yeah. right it's it's like this kind of savage like hungering beast um because that's very reflective of how um asuka is as a person and i think interestingly it is it's also very reflective of how mari is um but again we'll we'll come back to the mari pin <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. um, but yeah, like I, I think that um, 
it's very subtle about the way that it builds Asuka's character. There are some very explicit moments, like, where she's talking about, like, how she has to establish herself as a pilot, or else, like, what, what is the point of her being alive? Right. Um, there is, um, obviously, the kind of, like, sequences where she is learning to maintain a relationship with, um, with Shinji as someone she has to live together with and be co-pilots with. She doesn't want him around. But she feels the need to connect to other human beings, and um, and you see that uh, when they like share the bed, and like, you know, yeah. when she um starts like trying to cook for him, right? Yeah, yeah. She she very profoundly acknowledges the fact that even though she's been alone most of her life, she's um shocked at how she feels lonely right now, and that's when she seeks him out, and um, right. It it kind of culminates in the very last conversation she has with Misato, where she uh, says, you know, she's used to being alone and she kind of prefers it that way. But she's come to realize with her interactions with everyone else, you know, over the course of this movie that uh, sharing time with others isn't so bad, you know. Right. Um, and. And there's that there's that scene with uh with Ray in in the elevator where they're talking and mm-hmm. you know um yeah she's uh like where Ray says like you know there's happiness outside of piloting and mm-hmm. Ava and um you know she also mentions like you know I can't bond with other people except for you know through the through the Ava because again she like kind of feels like she doesn't really deserve anything mm-hmm. and. I think that's interesting because it's um it it both shows like why the, like the kind of motivation behind like why they why they pilot Ava's but it also shows like it it has kind of this connection to the idea of the Evangelion as both a parental figure um or an authority and as kind of self actualization like there's a very like kind of um tenuous line between those two that you you kind of have to tread um as you kind of grow into um an adolescent and an adult where because Asuka is so um defined by the validation of of others especially those in in positions um of authority it it's very difficult for her to see a life outside of the Ava um and yeah where you know 2.22 is like ray coming to terms with um the kind of burgeoning humanity inside of her the kind of burgeoning desire of humanity um kind of growing inside her um asuka is a lot about um learning to be uh independent of the expectations of of others and Mm -hmm. like how to stand as kind of the tiny fragile flesh person outside of the giant meat flesh person <laughs> uh-huh. covered in big metal plates right? <laughs> yeah <laughs> well because this is something that i'm i'm always interested in the idea of of mechs as self-actualization of like the idealized body of sure. the armor that one puts on to challenge the world um because in in many um properties that is what it is in ava it kind of is that but it's also a very like dangerous thing because they're subverting the idea of what a mech is right they have like the mech and then inside the mech is a person and then inside that person is another person right and so you have this like very distressing kind of organic fleshy um 
like innered, I guess, yeah. you know, <laughs> in inner world to uh-huh. what otherwise looks like to other people, um, armor, a weapon, a way to, to tackle the world. Like underneath all of humanity's creations is ultimately like the kind of fragile and very powerful sense of being made of flesh, right? Yeah. <laughs> Literally made of flesh in in this case. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I think I did mention that in um one of the, the previous uh Evangelion episodes. But mm, like mm-hmm. it's very interesting how my my understanding of, of the mechs just continues kind of to evolve as I like think more about mechs yeah, as a as definitely. an idea. Which is which is which is funny because like when when you think about um Evangelion, you you kind of first think about the mechs or the Evas um as like you know mech slash not mechs, but in reality the kind of like real weapon actually of of Evangelion at its core is the AT field. So like mm. when you really think about it, like the 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 mechs are only a way to project your AT field into the world, right? You need the mech as a conduit to um to to you know generate the the at field and you need the at field because without an at field you cannot penetrate another at field so there's a very like interesting and also kind of like very violent idea of how um like psychology and ideology works where like the most powerful thing in the entire evangelian universe you know a, a universe where things routinely explode is mm-hmm. is the human like will and the human mind and the human determination to to make things happen, right? It's like the pure kind of psychological manifestation of of will, which yeah. you know, is um is I think very very interesting, obviously, right? Yeah. Um, it's because while while Evangelion exists as a kind of subversion of and a deconstruction of shonen anime tropes, it still takes a lot from those those tropes, and it reframes them in a way that is um, that shows you just how violent that idea is, and just how important it is, right? Oh like, yeah, for sure. The fact that the fact that like the angels have these AT fields, and the only way that you can like hurt the angel is by like literally like piercing the AT field with your own AT field is like such a violent, invasive idea but is, like, kind of core to how Evangelion understands how people connect to each other. Yes, yes. It is the idea that without the um, ability to hurt other people and be hurt in Mm -hmm. in return, like, you cannot come to an understanding. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the culmination of the whole shebang, the whole story, and, and why Shinji ends up, at least in the original series, deciding to, uh, choose against Seal's plan of uh, absorbing everyone into one entity. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it, it it also is like the importance of having a boundary that is strong yeah. enough, right? Yeah. It's like if you as a person exist in society and you can generate boundaries powerful enough to repel the kind of like invasive uh, tendencies of, of other people, then you can... Uh, I mean, you need that to survive. And yeah. at the same time, if those boundaries are too strong, mm-hmm. if you have boundaried yourself up to the point where nobody can reach you anymore, then you cease to be a human being, mm-hmm. right? Where mm-hmm. literally, like, 
Shinji generates an AT field so powerful, he causes the apocalypse. <laughs> like, he literally just ascends to, to godhood. And, um, oh boy, <laughs> that's, that's quite a lot, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah. like, it's, it's also like, um, I mean, obviously, there's kind of other things I wanted to touch on about, like, the, the idea uh, of the apocalypse, but we'll, I'll, I can put a pin in that. We can touch on it later, because I think there's some other stuff I um, obviously, like, you know, uh, want, want to talk about. Um, sure. I, I, I do like that um, there is a scene where Misato says, I'm not waiting for a miracle. I'm going to create one with human determination, because, like, it really frames the, the whole series in a way where, like it is about the importance of of like human determination um but it's framed in in such a way that like it is the will of young people wishing to change and protect the world that will that will protect it from you know the sort of existential threats that that threaten it which is like i don't know i i, 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 I don't know i just feel like that's like a little bit relevant right now yeah in our, you know in our current sort of bit, looming you know, climate yeah. crisis it's just a thought i'm, I'm yeah, yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's, yeah, no, it's a huge thing in, in Ava, and it's especially demonstrated through Shinji's character and his whole shtick about not running away is when he does run away, nothing happens. Or, um, in the case of 2.0, when he ran away, the world continued to slide towards disaster, but he was still told, you know, you're young, it's okay if you want to run away, but if you're going to run away, do it right now because the city's being destroyed. Um, and, uh, the plot doesn't exactly move forward until he makes a decision and he decides that he's going to go back and pilot the Ava. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, let us, let's, I want to return to the, I, to the, um, the topic of apocalypse. Cause I think, um, a lo- so apocalypse as a thing is, is always kind of a very interesting, um, idea to me. Like what, what does it mean to, to have an apocalypse? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very important because there's, um, I don't know, three of them that happen in Evangelion, I think. <laughs> yes. Maybe more. Um, but, like, <laughs> it's it's very interesting. Second impact happens, and then the ocean is basically rendered unlivable. So, like, yeah. nothing lives in the ocean anymore, and the only fish that exist are in, like, tanks. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, you kind of see, because you get so much of, of the kind of mundane action of, of Tokyo 3 in 2.22, it really, like, it frames it as, I mean, the apocalypse happened and we're just going to move on, which is, like, kind of how it works, actually. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, something terrible will happen and then people will just, will just adjust to it, right? Right. It becomes a very normal thing very, very quickly. And you can kind of see that even in the design of Tokyo 3 as a place that is, that is it's a landscape that is built for combat, right? There, yes. Like, this is, this is something that um, I like to think about, which is, uh, what is what is your location designed for? If you look at the design of most, of most American cities, they're designed for cars. Some places don't even have sidewalks for people to walk on. Like, yeah. The, yeah. the design of a lot of modern American cities First and foremost is so that cars can get around, not for mm-hmm. people to walk around. Whereas mm-hmm. if you look at a lot of like older European cities, they're made for people to walk around. You can barely fit a car on some of these um, some sure. of these streets. Yeah. And in kind of the same vein, 
Tokyo 3 is a, a landscape that is, that is built for combat. The living structures sink and retreat into the ground, mm-hmm. and the landscape is very modular. They can just, like, put plates up to create paths for the Evangelions to run on. Yeah. Right? yeah. So it is, it is the landscape of a place that is meant for combat. It is um, mm-hmm. the normalization of constant warfare which like i don't i don't know about you renu but i don't that, that just feels a little bit relevant to me as a person who lives in the united states of america a place that's been actively yeah. at war for 19 years for seemingly no reason <laughs> i mean you could see it in, in how the civilians treat like shelter warnings and how they have to you know go go into hiding or whatever they're so casual about it they're like, okay, yeah, it's another shelter warning, whatever, no big deal. And then they just mm-hmm. kind of try and listen to the news or whatever, or just they they just hang right. out. But <laughs> you you know you know that if Evangelion took place in in the United States, there would be people that would be like, I don't believe in no angels. <laughs> I'm going outside. Ah! <laughs> like the 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 current sort of um response to how um how people are handling the the pandemic really kind of frames that in a very different light. Um, Mm. Because obviously a country like Japan has remarkably low um, transmission rate for how big the country is. Obviously they uh, have done a little bit of fudging and covering things up that um, they shouldn't have been, but it's a very densely, densely populated place. And it's remarkable. But it turns out it's just because everyone wears masks when they get sick. It's just normal there. Yeah. And anyway. Oh, God. Okay. I, I have to pull yeah. it away. I have to pull. Yeah. I, we got to yeah. pull back. <laughs> back to Ava. Back to Ava. <laughs> anyway. Um, oh, boy. Uh, but, yeah. It's, um, it, is, it is very interesting to me, um, the, the idea of the apocalypse becoming normalized. And yet. More apocalypses are on the horizon. They're always waiting to happen. The world could end <laughs> pretty much at any point. And, and it does, right? And yeah. it frames what is an apocalypse in, I think, a very interesting way. Because there is the very, like, literal explosion that happens that makes the ocean unlivable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, but there is a... Um, there's kind of a also a subtextual level to to the apocalypse of you know it's the apocalypse as a as an end to the old status quo and the beginning of of something new which is what third impact really is um yeah like i i'm interested in second impact as the the uh and actually all of the impacts basically are the impacts of um of the violence of divinity because, like, when, when Gendo and, oh, God, I'm blanking on the other guy's name, the old guy. Uh, Fuyutsuki? Fuyutsuki, yes. I, I remember, I, I really liked his name, I just don't remember it. Really <laughs> um, are, like, flying over uh, the crater of Second yeah, Impact. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, like, having a conversation about it where, where they're, like, it, it is a, uh, it's an area cleansed of the original sin of humanity, and... Um, Fuyutsuki kind of like remarks like I, I prefer the, the chaos of, of you know being human and Gendo's like you know being human is, is actually like a it's actually a harmony um, that you know like the, the line between chaos and harmony is so like murky and I think that's interesting because it really reminds me a lot of um, it reminds me a lot a lot a lot of uh, Devilman Crybaby the end of Devilman Crybaby mm-hmm, where like mm-hmm. the angels just nuke the planet Mm-hmm. And it shows you 
like all of these like geometric shaped explosions where certainly mass death is happening and it's like this is the perfect precision of divinity the perfect precise violence of divinity and right. Evangelion has a very similar approach to it. I mean, even yeah. in the even in the angel design, you can see it. Where like mm-hmm. a lot of them are mm-hmm. these like very hard geometric yes. shapes. Yes. Like they are angels, and those angels are defined by by perfection. And, right. Um. It is it is interesting that as the series kind of goes on, as the movies kind of continue and the plot continues, the angels become more and more um organic to the point yeah. of like yep. very like sort of uncanny and like. I don't know. That stuff is always very interesting to me. I I am super into the idea of like, you know, what what is divinity um really except for like the mandate of violence. <laughs> which is <laughs> which is like such a I think it's such a like uniquely non-western thing. Like I'm not going to say mm-hmm. it's a uniquely Japanese thing, but it's a very uniquely like non-western um idea where um I think because um because the uh, sort of framing of Christianity is more about, like, mercy and, at least on the surface, about, like, mercy, even though people did, like, a lot of killing in the name of Jesus. Um, but, like, when you live on the other side of that and you also kind of um, have your own mythologies that have a lot of violence in them, um, which is funny because like Evangelion is based on is like biblical mythology, and really, if you think about it, God does a lot of killing. God does a lot, a lot of killing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, there is a very like indiscriminate violence to to the idea of divinity that is very different from the very like pointed and murky and messy and chaotic violence that humans inflict upon each other on on kind of a daily basis like Hideki Anno basically made an anime series where he was like being alive is violence how do you feel about that (laughs) he sure did (laughs) yep he he sure did um but like anyway uh, back to my point so in in kind of (laughs) non-western context Uh um the idea of of western divinity as violence as like Violence backed by power, like state power, is very poignant, I'll say. Like, there is a reason why if you see a church in a JRPG, they are almost certainly the bad guys. It's, <laughs> it's almost like when you try to proselytize to an entire country like four or five times, people get a little upset about it. Turns out when you do it at gunpoint, people get a little upset about it. <laughs> it's... It's funny that you say that because um, I want to say like in the past couple of months, I've been replaying through um, the original Shining Force and uh-huh. in, in Shining Force, the, the save point and the place where you be- eventually like get to promote all your dudes to higher classes is at the church. Uh-huh. Um, but then there's one point in the game where the church gets sacked and is completely replaced by like evil monster demon guys. And they're all pretending to be, you know, members of the church and stuff like that. <laughs> and, and then yeah. they ambush you in the church. <laughs> right. The one place you thought you yeah. were safe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, um, this is, this is like very much a thing with, uh, with like Fire Emblem. Obviously the, the latest one had a very complicated relationship to religion and the church. And I think mm-hmm. one that it did not necessarily handle that well, but complaints <laughs> aside. Um, complaints aside uh, about that, like, yeah, a lot of Japanese media properties, uh, church, bad guys. 
Helsing, yeah. church bad guys. <laughs> um, Fire Emblem, church bad guys. Uh, let's see. What else? What else? Um, I don't know. Like Dragon Quest, church bad guys, probably. What? Wait, don't you get revived at, back at the church? I mean, probably, yeah. <laughs> like your coffin gets carried back to the church and then you come back. <laughs> right, right. Although Dra- Dragon Quest is is very kind of unique in its very like Western roots, um, which is interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it's uh, you know, church bad guy. That's that's how I'm saying. <laughs> Institutionalized religion is the problem. There is one thing I, I did want to say, um, uh, which is okay. in regards to the church. Um, I find it very, <laughs> yes. I find it very funny that the um the non, I guess. I guess you could call it a non-aggression pact, right? The non-aggression pact, the Vatican Treaty, as it's called. Oh, yeah! <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I find that to be hysterical, right? Because it, it's very, like, um, okay. So there are a lot of, like, really complicated kind of historical factors at play here. Um, one, the idea yeah. of the Vatican as kind of this, like, um, place where uh, all of the, the countries, the remaining countries in the world will, like, you know, come to, talk about their military non-aggression right. to each other right right um two there is like uh this this idea of evangelians as um weapons of war um because they're fighting a war against angels but presumably also because they think that the avas could fight each other which you know um happens at the the end of evangelion um mm-hmm. where you know asuka's fighting the the like uh, mass-produced avas um that kind of stuff where um Definitely, uh, that's a thing, right? But also, I, I find it funny because um, the one remark that I believe Misato makes about it is that the Vatican Treaty is about the egos of countries. And that line really strikes me because, like, obviously, you know, Evangelion, as we've discussed before, has a lot of, like, strong basis in Jungian psychology, like Freudian Jungian psychology. Um, and so when you talk about the ego in that context, you can't, like, not think about, like, you know, the ego. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that in the Japanese um, version of, uh, of the dub, like, she says, like, ego, like, ego. Um, yeah. So it's kind of about the, like, base impulse desires of, um, of, the, uh, of, of, the, uh, of the varying countries, but also about their kind of pride as as national entities right Um, yeah and this is a very like complicated historical um basis because um japan is not allowed to have a standing army they have a self-defense force which is what they call their non-standing army yeah yeah. um but but following world war ii japan was not uh like signed a treaty and they're not allowed to have a, a standing army which is something that hard, like hardline nationalists get very upset about in Japan to this very day. They're they're always always pushing to like make it so that they can have a standing army again. Which is like you have that self defense force. It's basically a standing army. <laughs> it's just not uh, called an army. <laughs> well, no, it just means that they're not allowed to use it to aggress upon other countries. Which I feel like all mm. armies really realistically should be. Yeah. But- right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. We shouldn't have armies anymore. We should just have self-defense forces. Right. Um, which isn't to absolve the Japanese self-defense force of, of any of its sins, because I'm sure I'm sure you can find many, uh, many wrongdoings um, inside of any kind of military apparatus. But like, that's kind of the thing, right? Where you have a piece of media about how you can only have so many weapons 
and it's it's a, a piece of media from a country where you're not allowed to have a standing army and you're presumably not allowed to have like nuclear weapons of any of any kind i actually don't know i, I don't know about that specific um hmm. uh aspect of it that might not be true but like wolf huh <laughs> sure um and also like i think there is some there there is some kind of like um japan as a like first and a half world country um kind of idea where all of the really big powers like you know the united states and russia and germany are like kind of doing with japan whatever the hell they want they're like here take this eva all right now take this one but you can't use that one anymore right <laughs> they're kind of at the whim and like right. this is interesting because like Anno is like very interested in um the kind of like minute bureaucracy of of national um entities and mm-hmm. Because, uh, like, if you watch, like, Shin, Shin Godzilla, like, it's, it's oh, extremely, yeah. extremely Everything. about bureaucracy, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, so you kind of have this, like, this tension on a governmental level between between countries, even though, realistically speaking, right, it, like, all of the angels are existential threats to all of humanity. And right, exactly. We're still, we're still, as people, unable to band together yes. without the structure of, of government, and so right. we... We have to go through the layers of bureaucracy. In mm-hmm. in in a way, mm-hmm. it's like kind of the idea of we have to navigate, you know, society. Even though like we realistically should just be working with each other all the time, right. and it doesn't necessarily have to go through this this much to to say like we should work together. Uh, because yeah. if, if we don't, it'll be a problem for literally all of us. Yeah. No, I I actually quite enjoy that about Anno's takes on these kinds of apocalyptic events is that no matter what bureaucracy is going to be your largest obstacle <laughs> right exactly the real enemy was bureaucracy all- i mean that that really is it though right like um it's like even even despite all of the angels the real threat to humanity is humanity itself yeah and it was the same in shin gojira where they had to work around all these bureaucratic so much nonsense they couldn't just send out their like largest nukes or whatever they had to get approval at each level and yada 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 and then logistics and such and uh yeah so i feel like i guess in regards to the whole bureaucracy thing i like how ano executes it because i feel like in other series you would either have the shonen approach where you skip all of that and you throw immediately throw all your giant robots, everything that you have at the enemy or the impending threat, or B, you get into the bureaucracy stuff and it's really boring or it's really badly executed and doesn't make sense. Um, right. And uh, at least with Anno, it <laughs> the bureaucracy still feels dumb in in that way that it's like it's a really dumb obstacle that people have to you know navigate but the characters themselves also address how dumb it is <laughs> yeah 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 i mean there, that's yeah. that's kind of like the the thing about bureaucracy right where yeah. it is something that uh, we invented as a species to facilitate the process of of enacting change but it turns out that people are afraid of change and would rather use the bureaucracy to um control people and so you have a situation where the bureaucracy does not serve the people people serve the bureaucracy which is like i mean i mean i mean really when i think about it um (laughs) 
really really when I think about it, like uh-huh. it's a very like Kafka esque thing, <laughs> which is which is funny because Kafka is very big in Japan. Um, mm-hmm. For reasons I think I think I must have articulated on the podcast before. There's no way that I haven't. You probably have. <laughs> I probably even talked about it in in. in relation to evangelion i like honestly probably should go back and listen to like the old episodes to like remember what i talked about but like yeah um it's 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 interesting because like the bureaucracy kind of happens off screen but people but like characters remark upon it and like it's just one of the many ways in which um evangelion shows you a world that is um like though it's showing you the world of adults but um, in a way where it shows you that adults are subject to the world of adults and yes, yes. <laughs> they have to live in a society where it is very difficult to like do things even if it is the best thing for all of humanity. Right. Right. Yeah. So like um you have this world that is out of the control of pretty much everybody, um, except for like SEAL, who are like the real like shadow masterminds behind all of civilization or or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so you you kind of set up this very interesting thing where you have this this generation of um very like young kids who um are subject to the whims of the adults around them, and then you find out that those adults are subject to the whims of yes. the adults around yes. them. Yes, <laughs> it just keeps going. <laughs> And on on the topic of Seal 2, I I think it's very interesting that there is a uh, basically a giant civilization-wide shadow government that created Second Impact, which is um hmm, uh-huh. hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I can't I can't put my like I can't quite place it. I can't put my finger on it. <laughs> right. But I, f- I feel like a mm-hmm. a mega powerful shadowy cabal of mm-hmm. of people who control many aspects of the world causing the the apocalypse to happen is hmm i don't know <laughs> it just seems a little familiar I, I can't place why though it feels kind of on the nose feels a little bit on the nose <laughs> yeah. feels a little bit a little bit on the nose um <laughs> it is um it's very interesting to me that like the the idea of Evangelions and AT Fields as um, the kind of last line between the angels destructing all of humanity and, you know, that not happening is, uh, as I said before, because the AT Fields and the Evas are basically a way for um, these kids to manifest the, the power of, like, of, like, will, right, of, of human determination, right? It's like, they have to fix all of the, and I mentioned this before, definitely in a in a previous episode about Evangelion. the The kids are forced to; they're saddled with the responsibility of fixing the problems that the adults before them could not, because mm-hmm. they're the only ones that can generate AT fields. They're mm-hmm. the only ones who can manifest the willpower and um, the kind of like imagination to to dream of a better world and to create it and to manifest that right they they're the mm-hmm. only ones with the strength to manifest it um because other people can't generate at fields mhm yeah right um and it's it's also just like 
it's also just like none of these kids are like well adjusted either, right? Like they can <laughs> they can all generate AT fields because they're really messed up kids. Right. Like they all got hyper trauma up in there. Um yeah. and I mean there might be there might be something there um to the idea that uh it it takes broken people to fix the world. Um but I have not developed that idea yet. So, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there and just kind of like float I'm going to float it out there. Um Yeah. Well, as, I, I think a, it's it's relevant to them, especially because they're all kids who have, um, at least in the beginning of the story, a lot of trouble connecting with other people. They're they're mm-hmm. each alone for their own separate reasons, and part of generating an AT field is to keep other people out, and so that's right probably right. one of the reasons why they're so good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess like when 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 I really think about it, right? The um the idea of of the AT field as a as a defense mechanism um is is very interesting um the mm-hmm. idea that they can only generate them because of the the conditions that they've they've been brought up in and at the same time um what they're trying to do is to you know create a world where people don't have to have that which is not that different from what the human instrumentality project is but at the same time um is because it's not just about turning everybody into human soup. I mean, on a meta <laughs> on a metaphorical level, like mm-hmm. it is it is different, right? Right. And on a physical level, like they're, mm-hmm. they're different things. But like mm-hmm. you know, um, the the kids basically are forced to react to the world around them, and you know, interact with the world in the way that they were taught to interact with the world, right. which mm-hmm. in many cases is, is in very destructive ways. Um, Cause like, you know, none, none of these kids are well adjusted. Um, <laughs> you have, you know, Shinji who just like has like the hedgehog's dilemma. He like really yes. can't become close to other people. Um, right. You have Asuka who feels like she has to handle everything alone. Um, yes. You have, you know, uh, Ray, who has to grapple with the fact that she might not be real and mm-hmm. might not exist um, outside of the ability to pilot an Ava, and mm-hmm. um, and I think most interestingly, um, you have the other two children, right? You have Kaoru, who is. Uh, and you're gonna have to correct me if my like overall Evangelion knowledge is wrong, because like it gets really muddled um, sometimes, <laughs> and they change it between iterations sometimes. But like he's like uh-huh. an angel, right? Yes, I mean it's confirmed in 3.0 that he okay, is that, that's an angel. Okay, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So like you have you have Karu as um as an angel that is like um attempting to uh manifest the same kind of um energy as the as the kids right yes um it's a very interesting um, idea of uh angels as these like perfect divine destructive beings that will Mm -hmm. bring about the end of old humanity and usher in a new age of of pretty much like you know just the angels right and you have kaoru whose explicit goal is is kind of the opposite of that where like you know he takes on a human form and um grows very close to to Shinji and essentially is like like it, it's funny cuz like Kaoru is basically like Shinji's like manic pixie dream boy. <laughs> he sure is. <laughs> right? Like he's he's kind of there to fix Shinji. 
<laughs> which is yeah, which is interesting. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah. but uh, <laughs> but I mean, Kaoru is an angel, so he can produce an AT field. And then you have and then you have Mari, who um, Mari is a lot. Like, let's talk about Mari now, right? All right, let's get into the Mari discussion. <laughs> so, um, Mari Makinami was created for um. I think I, I think she was actually created for the the PS2 games or something. Oh, really? Um, or something weird like that. But they put her into the movies, and the only thing Ano like had in mind when he was putting Mari in the movies was I want her to break Evangelion. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, he had no other ideas other than I want her to break Evangelion, which uh-huh. is very interesting because like, so Ano has a very complicated relationship to evangelion as a concept um sure. in many ways it feels like um ano created something that was an indictment of of the people who uh watched it right it was very much um and as- especially if you watch like end of evangelion um the very like last kind of lingering scene of just like the the crowd in the movie right uh-huh. it's like Ano created Evangelion, and it was basically a finger pointing at otaku culture and just being like, you sickos. What are you doing? Right? Uh Like, he created all these characters that, um, you know, uh, people were very into archetypically, and then he he gave them depth that made it very uncomfortable to be attached to those characters. Not that that didn't stop people eventually. Sure. Again, people normalize anything, right? Yeah. But, like, like one has to understand that in the context of when Evangelion came out, that was that was more or less like very much unheard of, especially in something that's kind of like um traditionally perceived as campy as as a mech show, right? And and you have like kind of where Ano is, I think, now with Evangelion, where, you know, he looks upon it and he sees exactly what like what the perception of Evangelion as as an integral piece of, of otaku culture, and he looks at that with kind of like an he he. I feel like it feels like a lot when you kind of read interviews and you kind of like look at how he makes the rebuilds, where it feels a lot like that Hayao Miyazaki like macro, where it's just like anime was a mistake. Uh huh. <laughs> where he seems to have such a hostile relationship with the people who enjoy Evangelion, and it's yes. like so fascinating to watch where like yes. the end of evangelion was this, just this huge indictment of the people watching it just like how dare you right um and each each rebuild feels like he is both exploring kind of this the same um like deep dark kind of uh like darkness within him like this kind of this emptiness within him um you know if if we read ava as kind of a uh a story about about Anna's depression then the rebuilds are about him exploring that, like, you know, 20-some-odd years down the line. And, you know, you you get a lot of, um, like, like, you know, like we get with, with watching it, um, like, a year, uh, a couple years later, you know, Anno making it, like, decades later, right, is we're in a very different place. And Anno introducing Mari to destroy Evangelion, which is so, oh God, it's, I fucking, uh, <laughs> I fucking love it. So for, first I think of all, it's I, funny. I fucking love it. Um, second of all, it has the same exact energy as like attack and dethrone God, attack yeah. and destroy Evangelion. <laughs> um, but I also, I also think at the end of the day, like I think Maki uh, or sorry, Maki, 
Mari <laughs> is a very divisive character in, oh, in yeah. the kind of um, series mm-hmm. of Evangelion. Some mm-hmm. people like really like her. Some yeah. people really don't like what she does yeah. to the canon of the show. Yeah. I think it's. I think she's super interesting. I think it's very interesting. I'm super interested in her. I guess like background and why what she's going to end up doing for the series. Um, it seems uh, like the whole concept of her destroying Ava, of course, is like wildly interesting. Um, but then um, if I don't know if you've seen like the 10 minute, like little tease or spoiler of uh, 3.0 plus 1.0, but she is a huge part of that. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's super like, I feel like she's going to be one of the the driving forces that will uh end Ava essentially in in the final movie. I yeah, I I mean I have to I have to think so because like yeah. w- when we hit 3.0, we're kind of in uncharted water because it deviates so strongly from mm-hmm. what the original sort of series was like. Um mm-hmm. and so I think it's interesting because what you what you get is in uh, Mari Mari shows up and she is very gung ho about piloting Ava, but she doesn't seem to have the same hangups that any of the other right. kids do. But right. you can you definitely know that there's like something a little bit like off about her, yes, um, and about the way that she she pilots um, and Ava. Like she kind of can tell that the Avas are like these these living creatures, and she kind of speaks to them as if as if they are, yeah. Um, and she also pilots them with such reckless abandon, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have Shinji, who is reckless because he is unsure and because he doesn't really know how to do things. Um, you have Asuka, who is, you know, reckless because she has to prove herself. Um, you have Rei, who is reckless because she, like, can't um, fathom uh, her her kind of own existence and and doesn't deserve like doesn't feel like she deserves to be alive right like you have all these characters that are so self destructive and they put themselves into these giant war machines to do deadly combat with world ending threats because because they're broken they're broken children and they're doing it to um, feel some amount of control in their life but at the same time because because people tell them to do so. Right, and then you have Mari, who is very gung ho about being um, being an Ava pilot, but not in the same way that Asuka is. I think Mari exists as a foil for Asuka, yeah. um, largely mm-hmm. because she takes a lot of her screen time, uh, a lot of her development time, and also um, in the kind of original drafts, apparently she was supposed to take a lot of the scenes that Asuka had. But like Mari takes them instead. Where like mm. um this the scene like where she uh she says like Antabaka or like um where where they like kiss and it's like really awkward because they're like fourteen year olds that don't know how anything works. Mm-hmm. Right. Um but like, you know, Mari as a as a character I think is is very interesting because from the outset it doesn't seem like there's anything necessarily as broken about her as the rest of the characters, but she still throws herself in to combat so readily and so recklessly to the point of being very self-destructive. But she seems to be having like a good time of it. She seems to be highly independent, but not in the way that she has to be to survive. It seems like she just has something that she wants to do, right? And so I think that's why it's very interesting to me, um, Mari as a character, in contrast to both Asuka and the rest of, of the, the pilots, um, 
about yeah. where she kind of stands and right. like what, what her background is. I have not, I admittedly have not watched 3.0 like recently enough to, to know anything about her role in the movie. Um, it's been a, a really long time since I've watched the rebuilds, probably like four or five years. Um, I don't remember when, when uh, 3.0 came out, but yeah. So um, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, her existence as kind of an anomaly amongst the existing pilots is super interesting. And probably one of the reasons why she was so poorly received by some of the fan base is because she just kind of comes out of nowhere. She has a lot of screen mm-hmm. time and she's nothing like the previous pilots that we've bonded with and whom we, um, you know, we're already uh, very familiar and fond of. Mm-hmm. And um, in that way, I think that she provides like a nice, refreshing take on the whole thing, I guess, like a mm-hmm. very interesting contrast. And in that way, kind of balances out the other personalities is that, yeah, she doesn't really care as much about like, the traumatic implications of Ava. She just kind of wants to delve into how fun it is to pilot. And in that way, I wonder if she's kind of rather inspired by like naysayer fan based opinions who like people who would be like, well, why don't they just like enjoy having a giant mech to run around? And if it was me, I think that would be the best, you know, like that kind of opinion is culminated into her existence. <laughs> I, I I definitely I think I, I definitely agree that that Mari is like a huge like middle finger to like the people who like Ava, which is yeah. again like part of that uh, that relationship that Anu has that is yeah. like, very hostile with um with his fan base. Um, right. And I, I think it's interesting because I, I do think Mari is like the perfect kind of character to to uh you know attack and dethrone Evangelion, right? Yeah. So yeah. like both the fact that she is so different from the other pilots, um, and in many, but in many regards, is is the same, and also mm-hmm. in in the regard that she very much comes in and throws a wrench in things, and she like kind of changes the canon of of the show. Like she changes things to the point where, um, you know, Asuka is in the uh, in Unit Zero Three because of her, right? Mm-hmm. Because her arrival yeah. in in Japan means that uh, sh- uh that uh Asuka doesn't get to pilot um unit 02 anymore, right? Yeah. I do think it's interesting cuz it sets up a um a, a slightly different arc for Asuka um that I'm I'm fairly certain gets built upon in in 3.0, but like again, it's been like a, a good handful of years since I've I've seen it. But like Mari is the, is the perfect character to do so because she is so flippant and she just like seems to really not care about all that much um she seems to be in the Ava for fun like she basically comes in and like destroys all your all your childhood memories right it's like when people are like <laughs> oh the new Shira is destroying my childhood memories of the 80s cartoon right <laughs> mari comes in and is just like oh is this your evangelion this is my evangelion now <laughs> right yeah and I, yeah. I'm honestly, I'm kind of into it. I, like, obviously, there's a there's like some aspects of Evangelion that will always be a little bit, um, uh, shall we say, uncomfortable because like Anna mm-hmm. wants to make you uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Um, about the idea of uh projecting and like fetishizing like 14 year old children, and you know, society has continued to do nothing but do those things, right? So he's just like shrug emoji, I guess. What the fuck? 
right? Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I don't I don't know. I th- I think Mari is um the most interesting character in in two point two two, maybe. Mm. Maybe sure. I mean, she I mean, that it's when she gets introduced, and then you don't know anything about her, and then by the end, you still don't really know a whole lot about her. <laughs> yeah, she poses a lot of questions, and she yeah. moves a lot of pieces around, and like suddenly you don't really know what to expect anymore. Um, which I think for for some people, because like I think people were expecting the the Evangelion rebuilds just to be a retelling of of the television right, series, exactly. and Anna was like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> foolish. Two literally opens with. Um, a bunch of English speakers saying stuff to each other, and then Mari is there, and and she's getting launched in Ava. So he immediately just decided to <laughs> to jump right into that. Right, right. <laughs> and it's I do think it's interesting because like in the original series, you have um Shinji, who is who is Asuka's foil, where um yeah. Shinji is a really good Evangelion pilot by chance. You know, because because his mom is like the most powerful Evangelion, right? So, <laughs> so naturally, it, 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 he's gonna be a very good uh, pilot. Whereas Asuka feels like she, like all of her kind of um, pilot aptitude is uh, is trained, right? Um, and yeah, I, I think when you introduce a character like Mari, who is like Shinji with no reservations, where she's very like very clearly a skilled pilot, and she really doesn't care about taking those risks like um like activating the the berserk mode um in mm-hmm. zero two mm-hmm. um like you can tell she's probably a better pilot than Asuka, which sets up that very distinct tension where what happens when I'm not the best pilot? will people still look at me that like that's kind of the core of Asuka's character, and you have. Obviously, her relationship with Shinji in in uh, 2.22. But you also have suddenly Mari is her foil and not not just Shinji, mm-hmm. right? You mm-hmm. have... Because uh, in, in the original series, like, uh, Shinji, Asuka, and Rei are this, like, kind of triangle um, match where, like, they, they each kind of complement and contrast each other. And suddenly we've turned it into a square. And right, yeah. that introduces a lot more possibilities, um, which I, I think is, is fascinating. Like, I, I, I don't know. I might just be the world's biggest Mari apologist, but like, <laughs> I, I, feel like I feel like she's one of the most interesting things that happens in, in the entire movie. Yeah, I mean, she very obviously, like, I, I, I want to say, contrasts and kind of antagonizes each of the three existing pilots in their own way. Um, right. She does it more against Ray in 3.0, but in 2.0, she definitely like sets up some tension against uh, Shinji and Asuka for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I mean, I f- I feel like it's kind of a moot point to talk about the animation at this point. Like, it's still probably <laughs> one of the most gorgeous animated movies to ever exist. Yeah. Um, yep. 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 There, I think is. Literally nothing else in the world that has the kind of weighty, like oh, heavy yeah. impact of the Evangelions, yeah, and the, like the very uncannily human way in which they move, which I think is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very unsettling and very cool. Um, 
this is obviously the movie where we get uh, Unit Zero One like Berserk mode, which is uh, mm, tasty. <laughs> oh, you love you love to see you love to see uncanny om nom 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 nom. <laughs> um, but actually, I was thinking about this um the other day um when I was watching where. Uh, Hideki Anna's background is in like tokusatsu like fan works, right? He, like he he cut like an an Ultraman fan movie back back mm-hmm. in his like college days, um, mm-hmm. back when it was very hard to make movies, right? But mm-hmm. I honestly I think like part of part of the reason he like ever really wanted to tackle uh, something like Evangelion was was part of was uh was that right? He wanted to make right. like, a tokusatsu thing, but mm-hmm. he also wanted to kind of. I'm imagining imbue it with uh, a lot of the kind of subversion of that because you know Tokusatsu is like it's it's interesting because Tokusatsu is very like sincere. It's very straightforward sincereness, um, sincerity. Um, I think recent ones have been a little bit more complicated. Um, I know that um, Gen Urabuchi wrote a season of Common Writer um, or a series of Common Writer, I, I should say, but. Mm. Um, for the most part, right? Like it's it's very like it's very shown in action. It's very like you know right. we will use the power of you know human will to uh, overcome any and all obstacles. Whereas Evangelion is like we must use the power of the human will to overcome any and all obstacles, but at what cost? <laughs> Which is like oh we're drafting children into God War, and if they become too aware of what's happening, they will ascend to godhood. They will yep. fuse with their Evangelions and become new beings. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it's... Actually, that is another thing that I wanted to talk about, um, at least at least briefly, where, um, like, on the topic of apocalypse, right? Apocalypse does not necessarily mean the end of the world. It just means the end of things as you know it, right? Right. So... When you have um, the threat of the pilots awakening and becoming new beings, right? The cost of that is the extermination of the old beings. That is to say, you know, the rest of humanity. And that's like a very, like, I think that's a very, like, generational um, Mm, anxiety mm -hmm. to have, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, like, Japan has a lot of anxiety in general about... um, about like uh colonialism and reverse colonialism mm-hmm. quote unquote right um any empire has a lot of anxiety about the collapse of said empire um and specifically oftentimes um empires built upon the idea of racial superiority or racial supremacy have the very specific um anxiety of uh replacement right the idea that we as the dominant race will be replaced by an inferior one, right? Right, yeah. And it, like, it dominates everything from, like, white supremacy to, like, you know, um, Japanese, like, hardline, like, right-wing kind of ideology about what Japan is supposed to look like, where most people in Japan, I think, at this point, um, reasonably speaking, are, like, yeah, like, a multicultural kind of, like, multi-ethnic Japan is the future of Japan. A lot of people have anxieties about that, and it's just like, but will we still be Japanese people if, <laughs> right. yeah. if we're not racially Japanese? And the answer is, yeah, um, yeah probably. Actually, <laughs> uh, that's that's probably how it how it works, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
But it is an anxiety that, that empires have, especially ones sure. um, built upon the idea of racial supremacy. So mm-hmm. you have this idea of like humans, especially like, um, like, you know, old, old uh, institution humans being like, we are very afraid of what young people can do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we sure. are very afraid that that young people will change the world beyond our recognition and it will be unlivable for us. And I think I don't know if that's something that Ano himself specifically has as an anxiety, but I do think that it is pervasive in a lot of like um a lot of Japanese works, but very much in Evangelion it feels like um if we take the apocalypse too far the world will become un- unlivable for us in, in the old guard, right? Right. And I think Ano kind of has um, a very complicated relationship to that because I think a lot of what he sees um, in, in that metaphor is more about the kind of personal self-actualization um, about like what, what happens when you become a being that is un- unapproachable by uh, by all others and you just kind of inadvertently destroy the the people around you as a result um mm-hmm. but yeah i mean that that's definitely something that you can you can read into evangelion like how how will they and your and their ideas be so alien to you that you cannot exist any longer as as you have been you will be you will be annihilated <laughs> right um, Right, because it's it's like you know the nature of of apocalypse is destruction, but also, generally speaking, rebirth. The idea of the post-apocalypse um, is something that we've been grappling with for quite a long time as a species, but also very much a lot recently. For um, I, I can't imagine why, but I'm sure some reason. I, I can't try to put my finger on it, but like anyway. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> But like the idea of like um the rise of civilization and then the the coming apocalypse um is this cycle of of violence um it is an existence that is defined by the idea of violence of course you know violence not just being like physical violence but the idea of um you know the removal of one's agency as 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 the idea of violence right the the existence of your personage in society is violence because you are enacting violence upon the people around you but that that is kind of at the base of how we exist as as a society um, and a lot of this is tied up in the idea of shinji as the main character of of evangelion um because you know we've talked about how he's a subversion of the willing shonen protagonist and how he mm-hmm. is like instrumental to the events of the world um if we understand um evangelion as sekaike right because the world revolves around his mental state and his relationships and and it changes to reflect those things and so right. it's very interesting when you have the rebuilds where different things are happening and suddenly the world is different right yeah but mm-hmm. like the idea of why is that the case um and i might have touched on this before but like the idea that you um that as an adolescent coming into adulthood feels like its own kind of apocalypse where <laughs> sure <laughs> where the world is both outside of and completely within your control and things are happening and you're not really sure how they're connected to you, but you know that they are. 
I think finally, like the thing about Shinji that that interests me is the idea that he is a reluctant hero, um, and it is only when he is is like forced to and driven to, but also motivated to take action. It is when he is motivated by his own desire to save Ray, you know, a desire mm-hmm. that he he says is you know for Ray to be alive. But um, Misato is like Shinji. That's that's just you, bud. You like you want that, right? Mm-hmm. Um that being the kind of most powerful thing in the world like um the the idea of willing a or con- or um i guess like uh compelling a a reluctant person into action right i think that idea stands as one of the most powerful things you could do cuz if you can you can will people into doing things something can change right suddenly right mm-hmm. right cuz if you start to you know inspire other people to to organize or act in a certain way um that that has ripple effects and that that truly can change the world Mm -hmm. so um yeah 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 yeah. um one more note on the rebuilds as kind of a concept um i know we've talked about how uh the (laughs) the idea of of the rebuilds as ano kind of sticking his thumb uh sticking his tongue out at the um at the fans of evangelion um, I I do think it's a very uh it is a very like weird thing to watch Evangelion um as as like before the final movie comes out. Like I think the the world after the last movie of Evangelion comes out will be a very different world than the one that came into it. Not just because we're living in the midst of a global <laughs> pandemic, but like the fact that um just the fact that like uh there is a weird quality to the fact that Evangelion is not done yet, right? Where Evangelion yeah. is an yeah. ongoing project. Right. The, the sort of ontological existence of Evangelion as an ongoing project is very fascinating to me. I think it is so fittingly hilarious that Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 was slated to come out this year. Oh, the yeah. year in which the world <laughs> went to crap. And then... You know, it's coming out next month, presumably. <laughs> presumably. Yeah. Presumably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, once, once the hailstorm was, is kind of ish over slash not really. <laughs> like, what, what happens to Hideaki Anno after this movie? Does he just say, all right, I'm done with Evangelion forever. Fuck you. Goodbye. I'm going to direct Godzilla <laughs> movies for the rest of time. Um, or will he come back in like 15 years and be like, all right, guys, it's time for Evangelion Rebuild <laughs> to Electric Boogaloo. I'd be kidding, man. Maybe I'd be happy if he could work on something completely new and separate of Ava, like really stretches wings or retires. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's like the thing, right? Where like yeah. I would love to see other things by Hideaki Anno that are not sure. Evangelion, right? Evangelion yeah. has been kind of the majority of the body of Anno's work. Um, yeah. For I mean, obviously, a lot of a lot of reasons. Um, it yeah. Has, some of the the most like kind of integral impact to the uh the structure of uh anime as a medium right mm-hmm. but um you know at at the end of the day i think ano wants to be done with evangelion too like he cre- he basically made mario so he was like i, I want i want you to destroy yeah. evangelion yep. i want you to yep. destroy evangelion i suspect that in in 3.0 plus 1.0 he will make it happen yeah yeah, man. <laughs> so do it. So yeah. Um, 
I think that's I think that's it. I think I've exhausted uh, 2.22 for the sure. moment. Um, inevitably, <laughs> when I watch in a couple years, I'll be like, ah, shit. <laughs> All right. Um, well, uh, I, I guess I guess that's it for the the last episode of of the year. That's kind of wild. Um, do you want? That's crazy. Oh my god. Yeah. Do you, anything you want to talk about before we, uh, you know, close out? Hey man, it's been three years with our with the uh, all you guys out there, and um, it's been such a wild ride. We started with Hideaki Anno's wild ride, and we're we still on it. Yeah, we're still on Hideaki uh, Anno's wild ride. We'll probably be on it for a little while longer. Yeah, and who knows? We don't know what the world has in store for Evangelion. But maybe, <laughs> maybe one day, maybe one day we as a society will outgrow the need for Evangelion. Um, but for the moment, it still stands <laughs> as quite the remarkable kind of um, important landmark piece of animation it is. And which is funny because every time Evangelion comes out again, you're like, ah, oh, damn it. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn it. This is still really good. <laughs> yep yeah Um, (laughs) yeah uh reminiscing on like three years worth of of podcast is is uh pretty pretty wild it has um it's been a a wild wild ride and uh (laughs) i'm i'm very glad that you could you could all sort of join us for uh for it um yeah it doesn't feel like it's been quite that long right no, it doesn't. Not not at all. Um, yeah. But then again, I mean, it feels like we've been doing the podcast for a year and it's been three. So, uh, like, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what to say, really. Um, I mean, probably part of that was just due to the fact that we started, like, weekly and then went biweekly and then decided to go monthly. So I think, like, we're at about the amount of episodes we would be at if we oh. had gone for – because if we had mm-hmm. gone weekly – we're in episode 65. If we had gone weekly, like, mm-hmm. we would be done – with one year and a bit. Yeah. So that that probably is part of what contributes to it, which is funny because, like, every time I have the podcast deadline, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's here. It's here. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, I'm, 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 I'm super glad that you can all join us, and I hope we can yeah. bring you some amount of entertainment in these uh, unforgiving times. Um I mean, what more is there to say than uh, I? I hope we can we can make next year uh, a good one, and that, yeah. <laughs> and that uh, you have hopefully at least a. I'm not gonna say a good, but I mm-hmm. hope you at least have a peaceful um, last couple days of the year, or you have had a peaceful rest of the year. I, I suppose I should say um, that is my <laughs> that is my only hope, and you know. We we have to keep each other strong in these times. Um, yeah. We have to outstretch our AT fields and um, <laughs> I don't I don't know, got tie them or something. <laughs> what? <laughs> anyway, um, our opening is as always by Scotty mm. Network, and our ending is by Takuma Okada, and we're very very grateful um, because. These uh these these o- this OP and ED have been standing by us for quite a long time. And, yeah, and we're very thankful. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I paid money for them, but like we're very thankful <laughs> nonetheless. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. 
And the patrons we are thanking this week are Evan, Cheru, Frostball, Sean, Magpie, Test, Undead, Uncanny, Claire, and Dylan. Thank you so, 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 so much for your support. Dude, it thank really you. Does, it really does mean a lot. Um, yeah. And, uh, oh, boy. I, I guess, like, have a, have a good, have, have had a good winter and or winter holidays if you celebrate any. Um, may, may the coming times be more restful and peaceful than they have mm-hmm. been for the last I don't know forever yeah have a happy and, new year <laughs> yeah, ha- have a happy new year and, yeah. and I think on that note we will um <clears throat> see you next time <laughs> see you next time <laughs>